Marketing for Smart People Radio. Weekly tips for building and marketing your profitable business online. From copyblogger.com. Hey there, everyone. It's Brian Clark, and welcome to the inaugural episode. We have a very special guest to kick off the new season. Probably needs no introduction to most of you, but I've got to do my job and introduce him anyway. He is the author of 13 books, uh, many of which were New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers, author of the world's most popular marketing blog, much to my chagrin, and uh, probably the most popular single author blog of any kind on the planet. He founded the email marketing firm Yo-Yo Dine, sold that to Yahoo in 98. He's also the founder of Squidoo. And his latest venture is called The Domino Project, which is a publishing joint venture with Amazon that we're going to talk to him about. Seth Godin, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Did you have a cliffhanger at the end of last season? Do we have to resolve whether someone died or not? I think we, we had a cliffhanger that was completely irrelevant, which I think violates some, some rules. But it'll be okay. No one will remember. It was all a dream. <laughs> that always works in a pinch. So... Let me talk to you a little bit about something that's been on my mind for a while, which is the business book. Um, We've both built our respective businesses with content. You've written 13 books. I've written zero. Well, I've probably written about five books worth of stuff, but not in the traditional form. Is the traditional business book still relevant? Well, I think we have to talk about relevant for what, you know, Uh, everything that has value has value at some point because it's scarce. And before Tom Peters, business books were extremely scarce. They didn't publish many and people didn't read very many. Uh, After Tom, the number of books being published by major publishers didn't go up very much, but the number of people reading them went up a lot. So if you were chosen, if you were picked by Adrian Zackheim or any of the other uh, leading business book publishers, it gave you an imprimatur It gave you access to people who thought deeply about business, who made decisions, who had influence. And there's no question that uh, in 1998 or 2002, the single best way to influence uh, the business conversation was uh, to start a company that changed the world like Thomas Edison. And the second best way to do it would be to write an influential business book. I'm not sure that that's true anymore. Um, Because what's scarce now is not the ability to get something printed on paper. What's scarce is the attention of smart people. And it's really clear that Copyblogger has earned the attention of an enormous number of smart people. And in that respect, you are writing the equivalent of a business book. You're just not chopping down any trees while you're doing it. Yes, absolutely. And, And again, from that content marketing mindset Um, My goals are being accomplished, and yet um, we both know, and and we talked about this years ago, that the people Seth Godin wanted to reach, even in 2008, 2009, even till today, to a certain degree, were finding their business information in the bookstore or on Amazon and didn't necessarily know about Seth Godin's blog, which hundreds of thousands of people read. Is that any different today? Well, I think what's the same is this. No one has ever invented a more effective way to transmit a block of thought than a book. If you hand someone a book, you are handing them an open window, a way to think about something differently. 
and you run into people who read Snow Crash or people who read Werner Erhard or people who read uh, Gone with the Wind and felt transformed by it. More than a movie, more than a record, more than a blog post. And so I still believe that in terms of the whole package delivered in a sphere, a book can do that with more impact and, and more ability than a blog post can. So I, I haven't done all the numbers, but I believe that I probably reach five to ten times as many people with my blog as I've reached with any of my books. But I also believe that I have a better shot of changing your mind from you reading one book than from you reading one blog post. Big Snow Crash fan here, by the way. Neil Stevenson, great guy, great author. Okay, so let me ask you this, because technology and the book are meeting head-on, and some people are doing some very interesting things. What are your thoughts on the new breed of interactive multimedia ebooks, such as Al Gore's Our Choice? Well, you know, if I'm, if I'm a copy blogger reader, I'm thinking to myself, how do I use writing to advance my mission? And the problem with the Al Gore project, which will probably be the last of its kind since the company that made it uh, lost a ton of money on it and has since been acquired by Facebook, is that it costs 10 or 20 times as much to make a cool iPad app as it does to make a book. And it reaches one-tenth the number of people when it works. You know, a a successful book might reach a quarter of a million people, but a content-filled app isn't going to come close to that, at least in the short run. And so I think that if you are looking at this about how do I get in front of people, the answer remains serialized, consistent, shareable content more than it relies on over-the-top, fancy eye candy, which is fun to make and fun to talk about but too expensive to sustain, I believe. Yeah, I think I, I tend to agree with you. I bought um, the book, and it's fascinating eye candy, but generally when I'm reading, I just like to read. <laughs> but I, not everyone is like you and I, though. We are, I think, fundamentally readers, and a big chunk of the population isn't. So I could see perhaps something like an interactive white paper to for product demonstrations or something like that when people really have a need for a more immediate multimedia experience rather than casual reading. Well, you know, here's the thing, and I haven't seen any data based on MRI scans, but I believe that when someone is deep in reading, their brain is pumping out different chemicals and they're accepting information differently. And that sort of hypnosis is a very important way to get past filters that people ordinarily have. Uh, The other thing is that in a book, no one knows if you're a dog, meaning that when they're reading your writing, they don't know what you look like, they don't know how you're dressed, they don't know if the quality of the camera was any good or not. And we judge content in movies and we judge content in apps largely based on the surface, not based on what's underneath it, right? So someone can hand you a a, a dog-eared paperback and you get the full experience, But if someone hands you something that was coded in lousy Dreamweaver HTML and is filled with flashing GIFs, you're just not going to go along for the ride. You are correct that we are entering a post-literate society. And that's why I would love to see you guys start writing about how one writes and delivers straightforward video. And I think the video I'm talking about is one person 
looking straight in the camera and talking because we all have the technology to execute on that now. For someone who doesn't want to read, it's a very direct way to, to learn something. And I think it takes some skill to do it right. And I'll give you a very uh, simple example uh, if I can pull it up while I'm talking to you here. I discovered it just the other day. Um, there's an, uh, an e-zine called How to Play Bass, B-A-S-S. Uh, it had nothing to do with fish. And if you Google How to Play Bass e-zine, you can find him. A guy named Paul Wolf teaches you the bass by looking you straight in the eye and talking about it. I'm pretty sure if he wrote it down in a book, it wouldn't work nearly as well. But I'm also sure that if he made it into a fancy app, he'd bankrupt himself. Yep, that's a great point. And, and you're so right. Um, people um, think of writing as text when, in fact, we could all wing it a little less and have a script for video. It's all, you know, it all comes down to that, uh, that essential copywriting. Um, and it'll definitely be on our editorial agenda this year to talk about that a little bit more because we are uh, transcending text with a lot of people. And as you point out with the base example, um, some things just don't lend themselves well to the written word. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit and talk more uh, marketing. One of the, my favorite of your books is All Marketers Are Storytellers, which used to have a different title. Um, <laughs> that, <Yep. laughs> that might have gotten you in a little bit of trouble. But the whole idea of, of telling a story, and in this sense, with a blog, or you know, if you want to call it a trade magazine online, like Copyblogger appears to be more of these days, you're still telling a story over time. Where's the line, in your mind, between art and really good marketing? And I, and I mean that in the sense of how you think about the content you create. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue that there are two kinds of really good marketing. There is really good marketing that involves repeatedly executing on standardized objectives and strategies so that you maximize your return on investment. And I would say that McDonald's from 1960 to 1980 was an example of that kind of marketing. Disciplined, focused, non-ego-driven and it generated profit for its shareholders. The other kind of marketing, which I'm far more interested in, is, I would say, art. And that is the transference of emotion. I'm sorry, that's my dog, because there's a power blackout in my office. I would say art is the transfer of emotion from one human being to another, doing something new, doing it for the first time, and doing it in a way that touches other people. And that is the art that we applaud when we talk about Steve Jobs. Right? That is the art that Howard Schultz brought to the table when he took over a struggling chain of four uh, coffee shops that didn't sell espresso. You know, Starbucks is here because they've done the first kind of marketing, the, the grinded-out marketing, McDonald's style. But they couldn't have done that if it weren't for the brilliant marketing, the art of Howard Schultz caring so much about a third place and caring so much about Italian espresso. You've been blogging how long now? Over a decade? You know, I think so. It's in the fog of my memory. I remember the day I switched to TypePad. Uh, I was sitting at a conference with Justice Breyer of the Supreme Court, Sergey Brin of a little search engine no one had ever heard of, uh, Jacqueline Novogratz, who I just met from Acumen Fund, and this guy named Joey Ito, who is now in charge of the Media Lab at MIT. And I watched Joey 
blogging on TypePad on this absolutely beautiful platform. It turned out he was one of the investors in Six Apart. And I, on that day, I switched and started my TypePad blog. But I honestly cannot remember where my blog was before that because I'm pretty sure I had one. Um, <laughs> and my email newsletter, which is what became the blog, started in 1995. Yes. So I guess I'm uh, happy to say it's been 25, 15 years. Wow. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about the, uh, the uh, newsletter um, during the Yo-Yo Don years, and then you were at Yahoo for a year. And then after that, it's really when we think of the Seth Godin that we know now, you've been at it for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little like Zig Ziglar. Uh, I'm a cross-eyed discus thrower. I don't set any records, but I do keep the crowd alert. <laughs> so what have you seen? Let's just go back to, say, 2001, 2000. How has blogging as a way to spread ideas launch new businesses. I mean, how has this changed from back then? Well, you know, who your readers are really determines your impact. When Wired was just getting started, Wired Magazine or Fast Company, both of them had a set of readers that were reading because they were in a hurry to make something happen. And so an article in Fast Company or an ad in Wired had this huge impact. I still run into people who saw the one and only Help Wanted ad I ran in Wired in 1994-1995 with my baby picture in it. That was usually successful for me. Um, Now, lots and lots of people are reading blogs. Lots and lots of people are in that space. But a lot of them aren't walking around with the posture of making a difference tomorrow. So it's a different kind of impact. You're sort of layering in this foundational thinking as much as you are alerting a tiny group of alert people to go pounce on the next thing. And so one of the things that I've shifted in my writing is sometimes I'll do a blog post that you got to think about maybe even for a week before it settles in. And sometimes my readers don't get it and I'm okay with that um, because what I'm trying to do is not blog for the day. I'm trying to blog for the long haul and sort of layer in this different way of looking and thinking about the world. And I'm really tempted. I mean, like the, the blog post I have in mind for tomorrow, I'm really tempted to add three more paragraphs to explain it, but I'm not going to because I think if you figure it out for yourself, you'll have taught yourself something better than I could teach you. Yeah, I agree with that. Even from a learning psychology standpoint, that's true. I've always wanted to ask you about how you blog because you write in brief, which is more difficult than I think a lot of people realize. That's why I write a thousand words. You know, if I had more time, right, it would be shorter. Right. (laughs) Give us some insight into where the ideas come from. What's your kind of editorial process? Do you kind of wing it or is it more planned out where you want to take people over time? Well, I think it's very important that I don't answer that question. And the reason is, (laughs) I mean, I'm happy to answer it for you when we're not talking on the air. But the reason I I don't want to answer it in person is there is this feeling that if you ate the same breakfast cereal as Stephen King, you'd be able to write the way Stephen King writes. And the breakfast cereal has nothing to do with the writing. And the habits that I have developed are extremely idiosyncratic and totally irrelevant. Everybody who is a fabulous writer, and I've met hundreds of them, does it differently. So there's no correlation. 
between how someone does it and what they make. And what we do is, because of our fear, Steve Pressfield would call it the resistance, to confronting the page. Sometimes we spend a lot of time making sure we've got the same laptop as this guy and the same writing setup as this guy and the same process as this guy. And it's all stalling. And what I would rather say to the copy blogger reader is write. Just write and put it in front of people. If you don't put it in front of people, it doesn't count. And if you get in the habit of putting something in front of people every single day, even if it's only 10 people by email, your writing will shift and you will adopt the voice you're meant to have. But everything you do that stands in the way of you writing, you know, going and buying a 12-pack of black wing pencils, is foolish because you're just stalling. You've got to do it for yourself. I don't really ever talk about my process either because people would think I'm insane. I mean, I am the <laughs> least productive. I mean, there, there's an image of me I'd rather not spoil by how crazy my process really is. So I totally get where you're coming from. But yeah, just write. We, I, my, one of my most popular posts is that 10 steps to becoming a better writer, and it's just write, 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 write. <laughs> I, I thought of that late at night, and you know, it's, people still love that post because it's a shock. They're waiting to see what you're going to say. How can you possibly tell me to write better in 10 steps, right? It's ridiculous. Let's, you mentioned Stephen Pressfield. Um, big fan of, of, of Stephen. He's appeared on Copyblogger before. His new book that came out with your Domino Project, which I'd like to talk about, I didn't expect to like it. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, The War of Art. I didn't see how this you know, do the work could possibly be meaningful and it's so brief and, and compact and yet it's probably one of the best books I've ever read on productivity. I just blazed right through it, but it was so literally useful. And of course I have Getting Things Done by David Allen on my shelf and I never got that done. It's too, you know, it's like a brick. So <laughs> how does that type of book fit into your philosophy with Domino Project? Well, you know, Steve didn't want to write a sequel to War of Art because it stands on its own. It doesn't need a sequel. It just needs more people to read it. And what I said to him is, more people aren't reading it, and they're not reading it because we need some more hoopla, and we need to grab people. But most important, what we need to do is give the people who have read it a tool they can hand to their friends that they'll read. And so the goal there was a straight, unadulterated shot of adrenaline, a straight uh, kick, caffeine, right to where it works. And it only took Steve a few weeks to write the thing um, because he wrote it the way he talks. This is what would happen if he could sit next to you and finally tell you to get started. And that's one of my best definitions of a manifesto. A manifesto is a book as short as you can possibly make it. And, you know, the Communist Manifesto was only 80 pages long. Changed the world. A book as short as you can make it that people who agree with the ideas can't help but share. And this notion of book as shareable social object is something that the book publishing industry benefits from but doesn't understand and doesn't embrace. So that when an author brings them an 80-page manifesto, they refuse to publish it. And it gets padded and lengthened and it costs more. And they don't sell them in five packs and they don't sell them in 50 packs and they don't make them easy to share, which is what they're so good at. 
right? Which is what a book is for. You know, it used to be that a book was the only way to store knowledge for another generation. And a book was the only way for a stranger to bring an idea to someone they didn't meet in person. Both those things are gone now. What we're left with is this artifact as a tool for accelerating an idea through a vector. And that's what we're trying to do from the manifesto point of view. Broader point of view is what I'm trying to do with the Domino Project is prove a whole bunch of things that don't work, hopefully come up with a few things that do work, and let my friends in the publishing industry steal from me. Right? My goal is that these ideas will be stolen from, they'll be standard in a year or two or three or four, and then I don't have to worry about this as much. Because I love books, I love the people in publishing, but right now there's this sense that they're just waiting for technology to obliterate them so that they'll have a good excuse to go do something else. And I think that's a mistake. And I think we've opened a lot of doors with format and pricing and distribution, and hopefully some of it's worth the effort. Big ideas, big ideas. List some of the titles. I know there's Poke the Box from you, and then uh, you had the guy from CD Baby did a manifesto as well. Yeah, Derek Sivers uh, did one called Anything You Want that uh, is one of our most popular ones. It is a love letter to entrepreneurs who love what they do. We just did Alpin and Polly's Read This Before Our Next Meeting, which is a manifesto designed to destroy meeting culture. You and I don't have to worry about meeting culture, but a lot of people do. And we're finding that it's becoming a subversive tool in a lot of organizations. Last week, we did uh, Zarella's Hierarchy of Contagiousness, which was the number one most popular ebook in the world for the whole week. And it is not standard for us in that it's a little more dry. It does not try to inspire. It just tries to inform based on real science and facts about what ideas spread and why. One simple stat. If you put the words, please retweet, at the end of a tweet, four times as many people will retweet it as if you don't. I didn't know that. That's really interesting to know. I only knew that because uh, Dan published that exact data on Coffee Blogger last week. But uh, yeah, ah. it's fascinating, the work he does. I love it. He calls himself a social media scientist. And uh, I think someone needs to do that. We have a lot of fluffy stuff going around in social media, a lot of opinion, not a lot of data. Yes, exactly. And that, that, that's often the case. They had a, When there were 2,000 car companies in the U.S., the same thing was true. And I want to make sure I'm not leaving out a favorite child here. Uh, I have another book coming but I can't talk about it. It'll be soonish. And we have a major, major project uh, coming out the first week of September that I hope everybody who's listening will pay attention to when we announce it because there are lives at stake. Yes, and Copyblogger will be participating in that happily. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, Seth, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Can you leave some parting advice for those out there struggling to get their ideas and their messages heard? Well, I can't do that yet. I have to do something else first, which is something that is done all too rarely. I want to call you out for the generosity in the work that you do, for showing up on a regular basis, often with no financial payoff in the short run, for caring enough and believing enough in the people who read your stuff that they actually have something worthwhile to say, something important to sell, something not just because they're trying to make a nickel, but because they're trying to do the right thing. We have built this whole web thing on people like you who are giving long before they take and are doing it with the right spirit. 
and I know that doesn't get said very often, so I wanted to say it out loud in front of everybody. Well, thank you. I appreciate that much, but we're doing okay, too, financially now. A couple years early and not so good, but uh, yeah, you pay the dues and it pays off. Um, So anyway, to answer your question, I think it's hard when there's stress. It's hard when your mother-in-law doesn't buy into what you're doing. It's hard when the economy uh, is going through a transition to understand this. But this is our revolution. This is the industrial revolution of our time. We are living through the death of the factory. And it is being replaced by something else. And the people on the cutting edge of that are the people who are inventing the next thing and talking about it with clarity. So when this revolution slows down, we're going to look back and we're going to say, so what did you do? And I guess what I would say to the copy blogger listener is, do something that matters. This is too important for you to do some little scam or some little affiliate deal or some little way to make money tomorrow. This is a time to do work that matters, to do something bigger than you think you're capable of and doing it in a way that makes a difference. That's great advice. Excellent way to end our episode here. Seth, thank you again for joining us. And everyone, please stay tuned for next week. Uh, We'll have more good stuff for you. See you then.